Thank you so very much for that wonderful time of singing. Thank you for putting that great package of music and praise and scripture reading together as we have been in the presence of the Lord this morning. I'm very grateful. Thank you. I'd like to begin by asking uh, this question. If you were to say to me, why am I a Christian? Just from a rational standpoint, I would give these three answers. I'm a Christian because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of Bible prophecy fulfilled, and because of the miracles of the Bible. Now, I know that the ultimate reason, far beyond this, as to why I'm a Christian is because the Holy Spirit opened my eyes. And he drew me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no other reason why I would be a believer other than his work in my life. But just from a reasonable standpoint, just from a a rational uh, point of view, these are why I am convinced that Christianity is true. The best explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus rose from the dead. And he fulfilled numerous Bible prophecies to the letter that were written hundreds and even thousands of years before he was ever born. And no other person ever performed the kind of miracles, the number of miracles, and the proven miracles that Jesus did. And so when you put all of this together, the most satisfying answer simply has to be Jesus really is the Savior of the world. Now I have a question for us this morning. We obviously have to wait till the end of Jesus' life for the resurrection. But here's the question. When did fulfilled prophecy and miracles begin to happen? What's the answer? Right at the very beginning, right? With the birth events surrounding the very first Christmas. In fact, when we look at the events that are revealed to us in the Gospels, There's a very clear theme that comes from those early events of the coming of Christ. And that theme is that God's long-awaited plan of salvation has begun in the coming of Christ. And we can know this because of fulfilled Bible prophecy and all of the miracles that took place. Now this morning as we enter into this Advent time, I would like to begin a series in Luke chapter 1. And this morning we come to the opening message which has to do with the very first announcement by the angels of Christmas events. And you know that Luke is the only Gentile author to write a book of Scripture. And it's very interesting, as we open up his gospel, he says right in the prologue that he researched these events very, very carefully, and he wrote them down very orderly so that we could be certain 
about what we believe. Now, did you know that Luke is the only gospel author that tells us about the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus? And right at the very start, he says that these events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist fulfilled Bible prophecy, and they were attested by miracles. Those are the facts. As I was preparing for this week's message, I came across a very interesting statement by a pastor many, many years ago who lived in Holland. His name was Pastor Van Oosterzee. And I want you to notice what he said. He said, the grand distinction between Christianity and all systems of philosophy and all other religions consists in this, that it is not a mere system of notions, but a series of of facts. And all God's people said, that is exactly right. Now what I want to do this morning in this message is I want us to do two things. First of all, I want us to see the miraculous events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist that fulfilled Bible prophecy. And then I want us to see the personal application to our own lives of what God was seeking to teach us. Let's take our Bibles, shall we, and let's open to Luke chapter 1. It's the third gospel in your New Testament. Let's just take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to dwell these truths deep into our hearts. Father, Thank you so much for our faith. Thank you so much that we are believing real facts. Facts that have been demonstrated and proven. So that when the Bible calls us to faith in a Savior who has risen and who is alive and is coming again. And will fulfill all that God has said he would fulfill in his second coming. We can trust Him. We can believe. Our faith is founded in reality. And so teach us these great truths this morning. And we'll be very thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to begin with me looking at verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Let's stop right here, shall we? The first miraculous event that we are introduced to in the Christmas events is that this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, had a miraculous birth like Abraham and Sarah. Now right off, as Luke opens the gospel, he introduces us to a couple with a serious problem. They have suffered for many years with infertility. We are told that they were unable to have a child. There was another complication involved in this. According to verse 7, 
They were advanced in years. Likely, they were at least 60 years of age, perhaps even older. And so they're in a situation where a birth of a child now is possible, impossible. And yet, as we read this chapter, it is very clear God has chosen this very couple to be the parents of John the Baptist. I want to ask you, how is this going to happen? Well, uh, don't say artificial insemination. Don't say uh, by a surrogate mother. We know none of that was possible in the first century. The only possibility is a what? It has to be a miracle. And by the end of this chapter, a baby boy is born... John the Baptist. Now let me ask you in the pages of Scripture, what other couple does this remind us of? Abraham and Sarah. In fact, the parallels here are exact. They were infertile. They were too old to conceive a child. And yet God promised them a child that could be born only of a miracle, Isaac. Now we have to ask this question, why the very same situation? Well, listen very carefully. In a new great period of God's grace, He often begins with the same actions with key people as He did before. Let me say that again. In a new period of God's grace, He often begins with the same actions with key people as he did before. You know what God is doing? He's tipping us off here. He is preparing to fulfill one of the greatest prophecies of all time. And that's why we have this parallel event with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let's read the prophecy that God was preparing to fulfill in these Christmas events in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Would you read it together with me? Speaking to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This prophecy, given 2,000 years before Christ. Clearly God was saying, one day I'm going to provide salvation for the world. And the miracle birth of John the Baptist... Just like with Abraham and Sarah proved God was fulfilling His promise. What an amazing, amazing thing. Well, now let's continue and notice how God was not finished. Look at verse 8. Now, while He was serving as priest before God when His division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. I want you to notice the second miraculous event here is the appearance of the angel Gabriel like he had appeared to Daniel in the Old Testament. Now we need to understand a little bit about what Zechariah was doing to understand what God was trying to teach us. There were 18,000 priests who were serving in Israel at this time. That's why Zechariah was chosen by Lot to perform this duty of offering incense on the altar in the temple. Do you know, once a priest like this was chosen, they would never do this again. This was a a once-in-a-lifetime duty. This particular day, as Zechariah was chosen... This was the most significant duty that he would ever perform in all of his years as a priest. Now, I want you to follow this. We have a very significant couple like Abraham and Sarah. This is the most important point in their lives. God is tipping us off. Something very, very special is going to happen. And to understand the significance of this, we need to know the details about the altar of incense. Every day in Judaism, there was a sacrifice that was offered in the morning and the evening at the temple. And a large crowd of Jewish people would gather outside as this was taking place and they would pray. This was probably the evening sacrifice because the crowd was normally larger at night. Accompanying that sacrifice was the offering of incense on the altar of incense. And as the incense rose, it illustrated the prayers of God's people rising. Now this is where Zechariah was. We know that the temple had two compartments, the holy place and the most holy place. The curtain is pulled black and in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where God dwelt and the golden cherubim that had their wings spread over the place where atonement was made. In the holy place were three pieces of furniture, the candlesticks, the showbread, and right in front of that curtain, the altar of incense. Here's an image of what it would have looked like that evening as Zechariah, once in his lifetime, was offering the incense. I ask you, could this be any more dramatic? 
When God prepares to fulfill the events that will send His Son into the world, He does things in a big way, doesn't He? Things in a big way. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the angel Gabriel appears and he announces that Elizabeth is going to have a son. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I ask you this morning, is not the appearance of an angel out of thin air a miracle? Is this not a miracle? And then let me ask you another question. Is the appearance of Gabriel a rare thing? How rare? How rare? Only one other person in all of Scripture ever had Gabriel appear to him. We often think that Gabriel must have appeared many times throughout Scripture. But only one other time is he named as appearing to another person. That person was Daniel. And when Gabriel appeared to Daniel, he appeared to explain to Daniel one of the greatest prophecies in all of the Old Testament, the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Let's read together that prophecy in Daniel 9, 24. These are the very words of Gabriel. Let's read them. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophecy, and to anoint a most holy place. Now when we break it down and we enumerate What God was prophesying, here's what we see. That He promised that one day, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to set up vision and seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Would you not agree with me? This is what the whole Bible teaches would happen in the first and second comings of Christ. Isn't that right? Absolutely. By the way, Gabriel is explaining this prophecy to Daniel in 600 B.C. 600 years before these events we are reading ever occurred. And Gabriel appears, now just for the second time in all of the pages of Scripture, to say, God is fulfilling His promises. 
But God is not finished. God is not finished. He wants our faith to be well founded. And so notice what happened in verse 14. Follow with me in the narrative. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Here's the third miraculous event. Gabriel was teaching Zechariah and Elizabeth that their son, the miraculous child born of a miracle, would have a spirit-empowered ministry like Elijah. Gabriel was telling them John would be a prophet with a very, very powerful ministry. Let's look at what he was saying that made it very clear that John was going to arise now as God's powerful prophet. When Gabriel said he is not to drink wine or strong drink, In the Old Testament, that was a sign of consecration to a very special office here, the prophetic office. When it says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, it means that he would have a special anointing of God, bringing great power on his ministry. And in verse 16, when it says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God in preparation for the ministry of the Messiah, all we have to do is turn to Luke chapter 3. I encourage you sometime to turn there. And here's what you'll discover. John the Baptist's ministry shook all of Israel. The Bible says there in verse 7, crowds came out to be baptized by him, repenting of their sins. In those crowds were tax collectors. Verse 12 says that in chapter 3. They were baptized in repentance. Some of the most dishonest, greedy people of the day. And then think of this. Roman soldiers came. They were baptized. Some of the most hardened, calloused, cruel people of the day coming to John the Baptist out in the wilderness, repenting and being baptized. You know what this was? This was miraculous ministry. This was God using the Holy Spirit through John the Baptist to change people's lives for the coming of Christ. Now I want to ask you a question. What Old Testament prophet filled with the Holy Spirit had a dramatic effect in turning the people of Israel back to God? What Old Testament prophet? Elijah. Remember the great event on Mount Carmel? 
when he defeated the prophets of Baal. And the apostate people of Israel said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. It had been 400 years since a powerful prophet like Elijah had preached in Israel. And yet, what are the very last words of the Old Testament? What are the very last words? Look with me at Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The very last words, and now there's been 400 years of silence. Let's read them together. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This prophecy was given 400 years earlier. And God was now saying, I'm fulfilling it this very day. Let me ask you a question. How many of you think that uh, God had Zachariah's attention? How many think he had his attention? Let me ask a question of us. Does God have our attention? Because what God was seeking to teach Zechariah and Elizabeth, He is seeking to teach you and me. And it was very clear in the temple that day that God had the attention of this man. And he wanted him to learn some very important lessons that are for you and me today. Let's take a moment, shall we? Let's not miss them. They come right out of the text. They're right here. All we have to do is see them. Here's the first lesson. Number one, God calls us to faith in what He has made clear. If you are here today, God has placed this in His Word to reveal His fulfillment of prophecy that has been attended by miracles because He wants you to trust what He has made clear. Look at verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I think we all have to say as we look at this, what more could God have done to convince Zechariah 
of the truth of His promise. With His knowledge of the Old Testament, His clear understanding of the reality of angels, I'm sure He had read the passage about Daniel many times, His understanding that God is a God of miracles from the many miracles of the Old Testament, He should have believed. Now, we don't want to be too hard here on Zechariah. He is probably more guilty of doubt than he is outright unbelief, but clearly God was displeased. God disciplined him by making him mute and hearing impaired until the day that that child, John, was born and Zechariah said, in contradistinction to what everyone thought, His name will be John. So why does God discipline Zechariah in this way? I want you to listen carefully. By his doubt, Zechariah denied the very power that is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, God's whole plan of salvation is all about His power that when people believe What He has accomplished for them, He can bring salvation to a lost world. That's the whole point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, faith is required. One of my old professors, uh, Daryl Bach, had this to say. When it comes to what God has promised... Doubt hangs in a dangerous canyon between faith and unbelief. And how true that is. Faith on the one hand and unbelief on the other hand are separated by a very dangerous canyon. And doubt sort of hangs over the middle. Not quite unbelief, but not quite faith. And while it's clear that Zechariah was not a man of unbelief, by his doubt, he was not quite believing. And God disciplined him. Do you know as I thought about this, I realized there are only two incidents in the Bible that I know of where angels directly impacted a person's mouth. Did you know that? There have been famous paintings of these two incidents, and let me put them up on the screen for you this morning. On your right, painted by Benjamin West, is the famous painting of Isaiah's encounter with an angel. And Isaiah said, I've got a dirty mouth, I'm a sinner. And the angel went to the altar and took a coal and he came and he touched the lips of Isaiah's mouth and he said, God has taken away your iniquity. You are forgiven. And Isaiah was cleansed that day by the angel touching his mouth because he believed. Now on your left, that is a painting by James Tissot. 
And here we see the angel reaching out his hand, pointing to the mouth of Zechariah. And Zechariah was disciplined, and his mouth was closed and silenced. Why? Because he disbelieved. Let me pause. Which image represents you? Right? There's no middle ground, is there? There's no in-between. When God has gone to all of these great lengths to make His gospel so clear, if we believe He will forgive and save us, If we disbelieve, the only alternative is to rebuke and judge us. You see, we came today to hear the Advent events. But God is putting us on notice. A decision must be made. In between that great chasm of unbelief and faith, there is no other choice. It is one way or the other. And God says to you, if I have your attention, believe, believe that you might be saved, that you might be forgiven. Notice the second practical lesson that God was seeking to teach that day. God answers patient prayer in His time and in His way. Look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden. Let me ask this morning, how many years do you think Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed for a child? How many? Decades? Decades? Now this was the day. Imagine. They had been praying for decades for a child. And now this was the day. Here's another question. How many years do you think the crowd outside was praying for God's Messiah to come. Right? If the daily prayer, morning and evening, went on from the finishing of the second temple for 400 years, this is 400 times 365, which equals 
146,000 days. Now this was the day. This was the day. Can you all say with me this morning, God answers prayer. God answers prayer. I don't know why God delays or why He says no. But I know this. God answers prayer in His time and in His way. Do you know what the name Zechariah means? God remembers. And the name Elizabeth means oath of God. These two names means God remembers His promises and God can be trusted to fulfill those promises. God answers prayer in His time and in His way. One of my old professors said this, God will answer our prayers in three ways. Number one, immediately. Number two, eventually. Or number three, He will deny our requests for a better way. He answers prayer immediately, eventually, or He denies our requests for a better way. So keep on praying. Here's the third and final lesson for us this morning. Number three. God has a greater purpose in our trials if we will trust and serve Him. The last word in this episode is given to Elizabeth. And look what she says in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Could I just pause here for a moment? There are many here today in both of our services who have gone through infertility like Zachariah and Elizabeth did. And those who have gone through it, you know the pain of a child denied. You know that pain. Do you know it was even more painful for this couple? Childlessness in that day was considered a curse from God. Since children were a blessing, the opposite, you were being punished if God withheld children from you. The wife was always blamed. In fact, the Jewish teachers would have said to a man like Zechariah, you are required to divorce your wife and to marry another woman so that you can have children. I knew a woman who actually said this to her daughter-in-law. It's too bad we didn't know you couldn't have children. My son then could have married someone else. Folks, this is pain. This is deep pain. And when Elizabeth says, my reproach has been taken away, 
That was deep pain. By the way, what did Zachariah and Elizabeth do while this trial dragged on for years and years and years? Well, back in verse 6, they continued living godly lives, didn't they? Because verse 6 says about them that they were righteous before God and they were blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They continued living for Him. They continued serving Him as well because verse 8 tells us about Zechariah that he was serving God as a priest. Do you know that's our great danger? That's our great danger as our trial drags on and on and on that we will give up on God and turn to sin or we will stop serving God because we really don't believe He's there for us. Are you at that point? As your trial dragged on for a long, long time and you've decided... I'm going to turn to a whole different way of living. A life of obedience is not worth it. And I'm not going to serve God the way I once did. He hasn't been there for me. Do you know if Elizabeth and Zechariah had done that, rejected God in bitterness, they would have missed God's greater purpose. They prayed for a son. God gave them a prophet. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that ever lived. He introduced the Savior into the world. And when he said one day, as Jesus walked by, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, there were four men following him who decided it's time to follow Jesus. They were Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And God had a far greater purpose. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, Trusted that purpose. I don't know why God is allowing you to experience the pain that you are experiencing. But I know this. It is for a far greater purpose than you know. A few weeks ago I shared with you a statement from... Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint. And I want you to notice something else that I saw Steve Saint said. Look what he said. The only sure way to maturity is through pain. And he knows something about pain, doesn't he? Lost his father in childhood, his college-age daughter died instantaneously. Here's a man who knows something about pain, and when he speaks, we can listen. The only sure way to maturity 
is through pain. Why were Elizabeth and Zachariah so godly and so mature? Maybe it was the pain. Maybe it was the pain. And God blessed them because they endured. Listen, as we close this morning, how about if we read these three lessons together and let's ask God to burn them deeply into our hearts that we might follow Him. Join me. God calls us to faith in what He has made clear. God answers patient prayer in His time and way. God has a greater purpose in our trials if we will trust and serve Him. Let's bow in prayer together. Just as we are quietly before the Lord and in a few moments we'll move on to our Christmas program. How is God speaking to you? What is He saying to your heart? And What does He want to do in His great plan of salvation for you? Respond to him now, for Jesus' sake.